Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll take another look at President Biden's State of the Union address. Uh, We'll talk about the debt limit and the opportunities, if any, for bipartisan policy uh, in uh, fiscal policy in 2023. Our guest is Ben Ritz, director of the Center for Funding America's Future at the Progressive Policy Institute. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson join us for the conversation. Uh, prior to joining PPI, Ben staffed the Bipartisan Policy Center's Commission on Retirement Security and Personal Savings. He also worked on uh, other budget issues at the Bipartisan Policy Center. And before joining the BPC, Ben served as legislative outreach director for some organization called the Concord Coalition. Ben, I know you've been very busy writing lately. You had a uh, editorial, uh, an op-ed published in the Wall Street Journal this week, and you've also written a, an essay for the Peter G. Peterson Foundation uh, on bipartisan governing in a in a time of divided government. But first, before we get into uh, any of that, I just I wanted to get any quick observations you might have had about uh, how these issues played out in the president's State of the Union address. And I I was just wondering if you liked the part about standing up for seniors. (laughs) Uh, Well, I think as we'll get into the discussion of the the written pieces, I think that um, standing up for seniors in the way he is envisioning it versus uh, how I what I think is probably better for for seniors. There are probably uh, different different visions there. Yeah, I just I kind of got a kick out of it after. Uh, I mean, it's just like things never change. Uh, everybody's standing up for seniors, and uh, not that that's bad. I mean, d- don't don't get me wrong. And I, I think this is the point that you were making. There's nothing wrong with standing up for seniors. It's just that this is not exactly political courage, and uh, we have some problems. And I think there are a couple of things that you brought up uh, in the um, in the op-ed this week. Um, for, well, why don't you just sort of get into that? Because it, it kind of came off of that State of the Union mojo that uh, that the administration is taking on um, entitlement reform and Social Security in particular. Yeah, so the problem as I see it is that the White House has really kind of gone all in on this uh, this strategy of uh, just do nothing. Um, in the just before the State of the Union, uh, the the White House really panned the idea of a bipartisan Social Security Commission, uh, and then in the in the the State of the Union, the president's you know he he was able to uh, to get Republicans uh, and Democrats to kind of say you know. Uh, applaud his line saying we're not gonna we're not gonna touch social security uh and the problem is that if we don't do anything about social security uh in 20 you know in in the 2030s depending on whether you do uh the cbo projections or the trustees 
uh, sometime between 2033 and 2035, the Social Security Trust Fund is going to run out of money. And at that point, benefits will be limited to what can be paid with incoming revenue, which means that we're going to be seeing automatic benefit cuts of over 20% when we get to that point. Uh, and so the concern is that if you do nothing, you absolutely nothing, then you're effectively endorsing that 20% benefit cut uh, about a decade from now. Alternatively, if he's if kind of the implicit position is we're just going to not do anything until the last minute and then fund the programs with with general revenue and we're not going to do tax increases and we're not going to do benefit cuts, uh, then you're cementing us on track uh, to blow up the national debt, continuing to pay these benefits with borrowed money. And in about 25 years, interest on the debt is going to be more expensive than Social Security itself. So I think the doing nothing option uh, is not one that it makes sense for him to be kind of going all in on it. Unfortunately, it seems like that was that was the line last week. Yeah, it did seem that there needed to be a caveat there about uh, the not just the budgetary effect, but the fact that the two programs uh, had uh, such serious issues. Is it um, I mean, have, have you gotten any sense from the administration that that there are things that they would do on, you know, the you mentioned the do nothing plan. Um, there are some Democrats that have proposed doing something. They're mostly raising taxes, uh, even taxes outside of Social Security and dedicating them to the trust funds. Uh, and so, in effect, taxing, you know, the wealthy and dedicate, you know, trying to extend Social Security's uh, trust fund life that way. Do you get any sense that the administration is friendly to those ideas or proposing something like that? Well, so uh, they did. The president did mention in his State of the Union that his budget was going to have a plan uh, to extend Medicare solvency by 20 years. Um, we'll see what that looks like in his budget. I think the fact that he specifically said Medicare uh, and not Social Security, I'm very skeptical that he is going to have uh, a plan to make Social Security uh, solvent or even really improve solvency significantly in his budget. It just didn't seem like they were kind of laying the groundwork for that. You know, one of the the main Democratic proposals for Social Security is the uh, Social Security 2100 Sacred Trust Act that was uh, reintroduced about a year ago. And that bill, uh, it did a bunch of benefit increases, uh, but they did temporary benefit increases. It was really loaded with gimmicks. Um, and uh, the taxes and the spending didn't really line up in a way that was was going to be sustainable. And so I think that it seems like the White House is kind of more likely to avert the problem than kind of go all in on a plan that uh, doesn't add up. But, you know, it, it's possible that they'll they'll say they support that. But either way, they're not going to be offering their vision for a, a plan that is going to get to 75 year solvency. Yeah, so we have two sides telling the other one, what's your plan? Uh, <laughs> on the, so we'll see. I don't think we're going to see many, many plans from uh, specific plans from people. But anyway, Tori, um, questions for Ben. Yeah, sure. Uh, ben was reading your Wall Street Journal uh, uh, opinion this morning, and congratulations on such great placement. Um, yeah, one of the things that you noted in the article uh, is that senators um, 
the bipartisan group of senators have introduced uh, the Trust Act, Romney and, and, and Senator Manchin, um, and that President Biden and his administration are wrong to oppose that legislation. Can you talk a little bit about that piece of legislation and why you think it's important? Yeah, so the Trust Act is a, a proposal by, uh, it was originally by the Senators Romney and Manchin, and it's got a bunch of co-sponsors uh, in the House and Senate from both parties. And the idea behind the Trust Act is that every federal program with a trust fund that is facing near-term insolvency, which means that uh, you know revenues are not going to be able to pay out uh, long-term uh, obligations, even accounting for previous year surpluses, uh, if a program's facing near-term insolvency, it sets up a bipartisan rescue committee for each of these programs uh, to put them on a sustainable path. So this gets around any concern that, you know, we're going to balance the budget on the back of Social Security or, you know, we're going to raid the mm -hmm. Social Security Medicare trust funds. It's really uh, commissions, committees that are designed to secure these programs uh, for their own sakes. And so I think it's pretty common sense. Uh, last Congress, uh, 20 members of the Senate Democratic Caucus, I think it was over 20 members of the Senate Democratic Caucus, voted for uh, for the, the Trust Act. And I think that it's really kind of the bare minimum you can do is to, mm -hmm. you know, have this conversation about what do we do about these programs. And if you're if you're even opposed to having the conversation about what to do about them, uh, that's really suggesting that you're in that kind of wait until the last minute or even past the last minute camp, which I think is is problematic. And so the White House had a comment about the, the Trust Act? Yeah, so White House spokesman called them death panels. Oh my! <laughs> um, I'm I one I found a comment in your article interesting. I was actually going to look this up, and you beat me to it. Uh, the last time Social Security was sort of close to 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 having problems, and we were running out of money, trust fund uh, uh, exhausting its 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 resources. Uh, the, the, the president at the time, and this is in the mid 80s, you know, supported a, a commission to sort of study the issue and, and come up with some proposals. And then those proposals were sent, were sent to Congress and Congress voted on them and passed a good, good chunk of them, including President Biden supporting changes to Social Security in order to keep the program solvent for not only the generation of seniors in the 1980s, but also the generations to come. Um, are you sensing a little bit of hypocrisy here or does somebody just not remember his vote record from the mid 80s? Uh, one of those I'm not going to touch. Um, <laughs> I, I think that I, I don't. Well, okay, I'm, I I I will. I I don't think that he's he's forgotten his his past positions. Um, I think that uh, President Biden has always been kind of in the the center of the Democratic Party, and I think the center of the Democratic Party. Uh, in Washington, at least, um, maybe not. I don't think it's moved as much outside of the country, but but the median Democrat in Congress is uh, much further uh, away from the the center than they used to be back then. Um, and I think that that he's sort of playing to the base. Um, I think that he, I don't know for a fact, but I think that he personally, um, I would I would be surprised. I mean, th this statement about the this statement about the the trust act being death panels came from uh his administration his spokesman it's not you know he he himself has not yet said i think 
a bipartisan commission would be a death panel. And one of the reasons I wrote the op-ed is uh, I, I hope that, you know, the Biden who, uh, you know, helped extend Social Security solvency for several decades by making real choices, I'm hoping that uh, he personally is still there, uh, even if a lot of uh, his staff may not be. Got it. Hey, Steve. Yeah, so, you know, you, you talk about these commissions as being an opportunity to have a conversation. And, you know, it's it's hard to hard to be against that. But, you know, having watched this issue over the years, I've, I've been around Washington <laughs> over 30 years. And so I've seen a lot of conversations. And, you know, unfortunately, it seems like in the last decade or so, both parties are simply talking past each other. I mean, you know, you went from, you know, under President Clinton and, and even as late as President Obama, where there was a general recognition that a bipartisan compromise would require some element of revenue increases and some element of benefit changes, whether it's retirement age or, or whatever. But, you know, now you've seen in, in more recent years, the, the Democrats have sort of switched positions and, and they're saying, well, you know, no, we don't, we don't need to agree to any benefit reductions. In fact, what we really need are benefit increases. Mm -hmm. And the Republicans are sort of saying, well, you know, we don't support any kind of tax increase of any kind. And so you essentially have, you know, one party saying, we want, we want to increase benefits, not cut them. And the other party saying, well, we don't care what you do as long as you don't raise taxes. Um, and so it's sort of, you know, whatever ground you might have had for a, you know, a bipartisan compromise, it seems, you know, the, the sides are further apart than they've ever been. I mean, is there, is there any hope to, to bringing the two sides back together? What, what do you think? I don't know. I, I'm going to avoid the question of, is there hope? But what I will say <laughs> is, is if they can't even do something as simple as a bipartisan commission or committee, uh, that will, that's certainly a reason to have even less hope than you would have had before. Um, I mean, it's, I, I can guarantee you that they are not going to come to a compromise if they're not even talking about it. Now that's kind of like the low for hanging fruit from, from, you know, long ago, whenever there was a problem and Congress didn't really want to address it. Oh, let's just put a commission together to study it. And that'll just sort of delay, you know, our need to have a conversation about this. And you're right. If they can't even you know, fall back on that old standard and have a conversation about, you know, that the problem, then then this is even worse than than we think. Well, that's what gets me about the criticism of the Trust Act is that when I first heard about the Trust Act, I was critical because I thought this really doesn't do anything. I mean, you know, this is kind of a wimpy thing. And now you've got, um, you know, people assuming the worst, that it would destroy the programs or, you know, death panels. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't mandate you do it on either side. You could do it on the tax side. You could do it on the spending side, some combination of both. It doesn't, it, it doesn't even mandate that you do any of them. Like the, the trust that you put the committees together and they could produce recommendations and nothing happens with them or, you know, they have. Well, and, or they could they could produce gimmickry thing. I mean, you could make the Social Security trust fund solvent by you know, assuming something's going to kick in in 40 years or 30, 20 years or something like that. And um, so because I thought the process could be easily gamed, I thought, you know, this would be an easy out. But right now it looks like <laughs> about the most uh, rational thing that they could probably do. And the 
The issue is really how do you get from the gridlock over the debt ceiling to maybe people looking at this as a as a as a possible way out. We're certainly not there at this point. It's too early in the negotiations over the debt ceiling. But I do think it's something to keep an eye on at the end because it does allow Republicans to claim some sort of victory on the um, side of looking at the long-term budget. And, and it would allow Democrats to say, you know, we didn't cave on uh, the debt limit. Um, speaking of the debt limit, Republicans have begun to put forth some potential spending cuts. I noticed the, I think it was the House Budget Committee had um, a bunch of proposals that they put out with numbers on them. Uh, what do you think? Is there is there beginning to be a little bit more of a realistic dialogue or not? Um, well, I would say that that uh, dialogue requires them talking to each other, and it sounds like the the Republicans are still talking amongst themselves and figuring out what their negotiating position is going to be. I'm I am sort of skeptical that they will they will get there, that they will come up with a package of spending cuts that they want with the debt ceiling that is big enough for the right, but not too big for some of the more mainstream members. So uh, I guess I guess we will see. I think it's good that they're, it seems like they're at least trying to put something together. But when you have Kevin McCarthy going out there saying, well, we're not going to touch Social Security, we're not going to touch Medicare, you know, those are fake talking points. And they're also not. Well, you can you can add on defense and military and pay, can, and we're not going to do defense. And you know, it's just, and we're going to balance the budget in ten years. Like it's it's so implausible um, that I'm I don't think they're they're I don't something's going to have to give, and I don't know what, and I don't think he knows what. So I'm, I think until they've gone through that process or given up on it, they're not really going to have a dialogue between the two sides because they're still trying to figure out what they're going to say. Well, uh, if they get talking between one another, uh, maybe because I, I understand, I think that they've been getting lots of briefings about how unrealistic some of these numbers are. Uh, you know, as you said, if you set aside all of these things, you know, you you can't uh, forget about balancing the budget. I mean, you still <laughs> you can't even put the budget on a sustainable path if you take so many things off the table. And of course, the Republicans aren't ever going to put tax increases on the table. So it makes it uh, even more difficult if you're going to do everything on the on the spending side. We have about a minute left uh, before we need to take a break. Um, anybody have a teeing up the next segment? Well, we, we hit uh, a, a couple of ideas that, so Ben wrote this article for the Pete Peterson Foundation about, okay, we've got divided government. Here are some ideas that we can, some policy ideas that we can accomplish in a divided government. We talked a little bit about the, the debt limit and we talked a little bit about the Trust Act and trust fund solvency. I say we kick off the next segment by looking at the other two uh, elements in Ben's proposal. That's what we'll do then. <laughs> uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Uh, Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson and I are talking with Ben Ritz uh, of the uh, Progressive Policy Institute. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. 
Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Ben Ritz of the Progressive Policy Institute about lots of things coming out of uh, two things Ben has written recently for um, the Wall Street Journal and for the Peter G. Peterson Foundation about bipartisan fiscal policy. And uh, one of them is kind of an intriguing uh, thought about a grand bargain on education. Um, Steve, you've certainly written a lot about the Biden administration's forays into student loan relief. So let me turn things over to you. I think there's a general agreement that the current student loan financing system, uh, the, or the, I should say the college education system, the way we pay for it, uh, primarily through uh, student loans, uh, ha- leaves a lot to be desired. But, but the, the Biden administration appears to be going out on a limb by proposing to do things through administrative action or executive orders or you know, in the, in the case of the, the most recent proposal through a federal register notice. But, you know, the, the pushback that they're now getting, I mean, to, to sort of recap, I mean, last year they proposed to write off student loan debt up to $20,000, 10 to $20,000 per student. And then this beginning of this year, they proposed a an income-related repayment plan, essentially allowing students to pay back as little as 5% of their income uh, toward repaying their loan. And a lot of the analysis that's come out has suggested that a majority of the students who borrow money for college would would pay little or nothing uh, toward uh, repaying their their debt under this new proposal. And so there's been a lot of pushback and there's been some suggestions that perhaps neither of these programs are complying with uh, the statutory intent or statutory construction or legislative intent. Um, Of course, the, the student uh, debt forgiveness is being challenged, and the Supreme Court is supposed to hear that case, um, I think, at the end of this month. So, you know, given the controversy and the cost, I mean, I, I failed to mention that both of these proposals uh, on a combined basis, assuming, you know, what sort of behavioral effects you take into account in terms of how many students would borrow more money under the subsid- under the additional subsidies, you know, you're looking at as much as a trillion dollars in, in loan forgiveness, debt forgiveness under these two proposals combined. So given the cost involved in the controversy that uh, has arisen, you know, is there some room for a a bipartisan uh, compromise that that would actually help students make college more affordable, but wouldn't have uh, the price tag that that appears to be uh, associated with the president's proposals? Yeah, so when I was writing the the Peterson piece, this was sort of my my dark horse idea for for opportunity for bipartisan policymaking because on the surface it does seem very charged and very partisan. Um, but I think, as you said, uh, the president's student debt cancellation executive order not likely to survive the court challenge. There are going to be these issues with the implementation of the income driven repayment plan. Uh, so so I think the administration and Democrats, you know, having not been able to deliver uh, this debt cancellation will be looking for alternative ways to do a college affordability win. At the same time, I think there is something that should bring Republicans to the table, which is uh, up until now, President Biden and then before him, President Trump were doing by executive action a freeze on repayments and uh, interest accrual. And this was it was ostensibly a COVID relief measure um, but that extended, they kept extending it long past when uh, they said the public health uh, crisis, the epidemic was over. 
so I think that, and that's not going to be overturned by the court, I don't think. I don't think there's much of a chance of that. So I think for Republicans, there is this appeal of reining in uh, this executive uh this, this executive discretion to to kind of more conform with what it was originally supposed to be. And from the Democratic perspective, it is an opportunity to deliver real relief, um, which I think gets to the third thing, which both sides, I would hope, agree on. Uh, and that's, you know, debt cancellation is really more of a Band-Aid than a solution. The ultimate problem here is the growth of tuition costs and uh, the out-of-control inflation in the higher education sector. And that's something that it's going to be very difficult for the administration to do by administrative executive action, even if they wanted to. I don't think there's really been uh, any proposal for it the way we had this this debt cancellation proposal. Um, But at the same time, if you're just funneling more money uh, with these open-ended subsidies to higher education institutions, that's going to make the problem of skyrocketing tuition worse, not better. And so if you're able to address the real root driver of the cost that will make the programs cheaper, which I think is is um, a Republican priority, and it will lower costs for students, which is the, the Democratic priority. So I think uh, in a weird way, we could see there being an opening for this this grand bargain on higher education. We'll, we'll see if it actually happens, but I think it's something that that is not getting the consideration that maybe it deserves because of how charged it's been up to this point. So is there a specific proposal that you have in mind? I mean, we, we, we talked about this on a previous show, and one of the guests suggested that, similar to the way we do home loans, that if you're a, a bank and you loan uh, money for, for a mortgage, that you're required to retain a certain share of the mortgages on your, you know, on your you know, bank balance sheet, because that makes you more vigilant in terms of controlling costs and, and making sure you have good, good uh, you know, credit-worthy borrowers. And he suggested perhaps that the colleges themselves should have more skin in the game, that, that instead of all the loans being passed off to uh, the federal government, that, that the colleges themselves should hold on to some of the, some of the student loans and, and give them an incentive to, to manage the program and control costs better. I mean, is that something you would consider or do you have another idea? Yeah, I think, I think that, that makes absolute sense. Um, you, you have to have more accountability from schools. Uh, one of the the concerns that I know there is with that plan is that uh, there, there's there's a risk of it creating an adver- or a selection problem where uh, schools stop taking stu- um, you know let's say higher risk students who uh, they think are more likely to not make it through through the program uh, and that closing off opportunity from some disadvantaged uh, students or students from disadvantaged backgrounds. So. I think there have to be, you know, ways to to mitigate that, and I think we also need to be providing more um, more good non college pathways to mm. uh, to good jobs because the fact is, uh, you know, if it doesn't benefit anybody, uh, not even the student, uh, if we have students going to college for whom it's not a good fit, and then they drop out, and even if even if they didn't graduate with any debt. That's years of their life that's gone that could have been, uh, you know, getting trained for for uh, a job that would have been more satisfying and lucrative for them. Um, and it's it's lost resources on the school's part and the taxpayer's part. So I think if we can provide more good, uh, non-tradi- more non-traditional degree pathways to good jobs, uh, combined with 
um, more accountability for the schools and scholarship opportunities, I think that's a good starting point for, for what these reforms would look like. So is there a way to make that part of the conversation, though? I mean, politically, it seems like, you know, there's this notion that, oh, everybody should be able to afford a college education and everybody should go to college. And, you know, we know, as a, as a matter of fact, that that's not true. But for some well, reason, I, there's a reluctance to say that. And so how do you bring in the, the sort of the, the, you know, the other vocational, technical, career-oriented paths without looking like you're somehow disavowing the goal of college for everybody? Yeah, so I think... I think the, it's important not to conflate two things. One idea is that everybody should be able to afford a college education, and the other is that everybody should get a college education. Um, I think that if you have somebody from a low-income background uh, who would excel in a job that requires a college degree, we want our system to make it so that they can get a college degree, whether that is through Pell Grants or scholarships or uh, well-designed loan programs. Like we want That is an outcome we want. What we don't want is to funnel everybody through the college process, even if it is not right for them or not going to lead to a job that makes the cost of college worthwhile for them uh, or taxpayers. And so uh, I think we absolutely need to have those uh, those technical skill education um, programs and, and uh, increased support for them as part of the, the conversation there. But we also wanna make sure that um, you know college is accessible for those whom it will actually help. So the the fourth idea in your 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 paper about all these uh, wonderful ideas for for bipartisan cooperation in a divided government was about you said make fiscal policy more responsive to macroeconomic conditions. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean there and why you think it's necessary? Sure. So we've now had our last two recessions. Um, I I think is kind of a um, Tale of two recessions are, uh, uh, reminds me of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. We had uh, one recovery, which was too cold. After the 2008 financial crisis, we did what I think a lot of economists now regard as inadequate uh, fiscal support for the economy. The recovery took much longer than expected. We had uh, a period of high unemployment uh, and also with it, low, very low inflation. Uh, but but this, this was a, a cool recovery. So then this time it came around uh, and we spent as much money as we could, as quickly as we could. Uh, and as a result, we didn't have prolonged unemployment. The economy bounced back from COVID very quickly and very strongly, lowest unemployment uh, in, in decades. But we've had also the highest inflation in over 40 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is this economy is too hot. And I think what we want is more the Goldilocks scenario. We want to provide adequate fiscal support to the economy when it needs it. Um, that's going to include some deficit finance stimulus at times. But then when the economy is returning to health, when we are in an expansion, we don't want it to overheat. We That is when we should be doing deficit reduction. We should be getting costs down. Uh, and I think that both sides you know, have an incentive to not want to do too much one way or the other, because the fact is it did not Democrats, there are a lot of social spending programs that we support, uh, but when we did them all deficit financed very quickly in the uh, the American Rescue Plan and we got inflation, that actually sucked the oxygen out for a lot of the longer term domestic spending that President Biden wanted to do and build back better. And so I don't think that the Democrats and, and progressive goals actually benefited from overdoing it in 
um, in the in the most recent recession. And I think on the flip side, you know, we didn't really get durable deficit reduction uh, after you know the 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 big deficit pushes in in 2010 and 2011. I think that uh, you know the the inadequate recovery did did sap some of the momentum for uh, for a longer term conversation about fiscal responsibility. So I think both sides would benefit from trying to right-size fiscal policy and keep it in that Goldilocks zone. You're listening mm-hmm. to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Uh, Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Ben Ritz of the Progressive Policy Institute about how to do bipartisan fiscal policy in a divided Congress. And it ain't easy. <laughs> we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Ben Ritz of the Progressive Policy Institute about certain uh, things like uh, how do we how do we try to uh, mitigate the next uh, recession? We've had a couple of uh, we've had too much experience with uh, economic disruptions and recessions in this century so far. Uh, ben, as, as part of the paper that you wrote for the Peterson Foundation, you talk about, you know, one of the ideas that has the potential for bipartisan cooperation, and we were talking about this before the break, is uh, some sort of an economic commission that would look back on uh, maybe two things, kind of like economic policy. Did we stimulate too much this time after stimulating too little the last time? Uh, and so you get sort of a roller coaster effect. Is there some way to smooth that out? And the other thing is um, just the mechanics of implementing uh, responses to emergency situations and trying to um, cut down on the opportunities for fraud because there was a lot of fraud people we're finding now from uh, paycheck protection program and unemployment compensation because it was having to go out the door really fast in this last uh, pandemic. Um, you know, r- rescue effort. So um, let me, uh, you can, you can go with everyone you want to first. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I think we saw entering the, the COVID crisis, how, how problematic it is to, to, to go in without a plan. And so uh, when, when the, the pandemic happened, in addition to increasing unemployment benefits, which Congress wanted to do, they wanted to increase unemployment benefits to uh, equal lost wages. They ran into a problem, which was that uh, they had no way of determining precisely what somebody's uh, lost wage was in, in an efficient way. Um, the, the They didn't have the database and the, um, the the program, the computer programs that were running the that were running unemployment insurance across the fifty states uh, were all using very outdated software. Uh, they were they they were not flexible enough, and so Congress had to do this uh, this makeshift fix, which was just kind of a blanket increase, which resulted in a lot of people getting greater benefits than they would have had uh, in lost wages, and so uh, that partially contributed to the excess of stimulus. Uh, it also contributed to a lot of the opportunities for for fraud and a lot of the wasteful spending there, uh, and it could have been avoided if Congress had previously, uh, you know, worked with states to make sure that they had up to date systems, that those systems were funded and well maintained, 
uh, and that they had a plan for how benefits were going to dial up uh, in emergencies rather than kind of doing ad hoc increases. So uh, we think it makes sense to have a commission look at these different elements of the failures of the response and propose ways to make it better in the future. If we make uh, small investments now in upgrading uh, the IT systems and the administration of benefits, and we figure out, you know, okay, based on based on what kind of economic crisis, you know, we're not we're not going to see the next COVID coming, but we know there are going to be recessions again. Uh, we can make benefits more flexible and, and put in place those formulas in advance, so that instead of Congress kind of having to make it up on the fly and make a lot of mistakes in the process, they are able to uh, have the plan in place and mostly I just execute on it when the time is right for it. Unemployment compensation is kind of a, a known known. I mean, I mean, you know, it's going to have maybe a known unknown. I mean, you know, uh, you've got the system in place. Something that's totally new, like the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, I, I mean, you can't really plan for something like that in advance. I guess. I mean, because you never know what the next crisis is is going to bring. But one thing you did mention in your piece is something called automatic stabilizers, which uh, actually have a, a pretty big, if unforse- uh, unseen, effect on the budget and the economy. Do you want to elaborate a little bit on that and why that's in your proposal? Yeah, so automatic stabilizers are policies that uh, automatically increase spending or reduce taxes uh, during tough economic times and uh, do the opposite when times are good. So uh, in some sense, it's on unemployment insurance is kind of the, the quintessential automatic stabilizer because when you have a recession, more people are unemployed, and so they claim more benefits, which increases government spending, which puts more stimulus into the economy. And then as the economy recovers, they come off, they stop collecting benefits, spending goes down, uh, and the deficit goes down. And so you put in place these programs to kind of smooth out government spending over the course of the business cycle and make it more responsive to uh, the environment in which it's needed. And I think there's a lot of room to strengthen those automatic stabilizers. Uh, both by having uh, benefit levels change as unemployment rises, you can have tax policies that are more flexible. Uh, I think you know, in terms of what the specifics should be, that's uh, there's we we put out some ideas in the past. I think where I come at this with this commission idea is, uh, I think it's 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 something that Congress needs to talk more about the specifics of than they have. Um, I mean, we put out ideas. Brookings had a, a book, uh, I think it was about a year ago, called um, "Recession Remedies" that that had suggestions here. Uh, and you know, we need to look at all those suggestions and figure out what can be implemented uh, and how we can make our policy more dynamic and responsive to crises. So we are not kind of waiting for Congress to pass these changes after they're needed. Steve. Yeah, so th- there's an interesting sort of issue here, though. I mean, you know, we've we've gone through cycles of recession and and growth and disaster. I mean, it's sort of like the you know the idea of the rainy day fund. The idea is that well, we know every year there's going to be so many hurricanes and disasters and storms and tornadoes or whatever, and you know we should set aside some money to, to prepare for that. And the same can be said for the economy. Is you know we know there's going to be recessions from time to time, and but that's been true for <laughs> for the history of the country. And it's interesting that Congress always ends up taking this sort of ad hoc approach where they wait for the crisis to be upon us and then they decide, okay, do we act or how soon do we act? And then, 
if we're going to act, how big is the reaction? And, you know, there, there never seems to be an agreement. And so there's this tension of saying, well, we know this stuff is going to happen and we ought to plan ahead and we ought to have these systems in place to respond automatically. The fact that we haven't done that suggests there may be a, a, a political impediment. And that is that both political parties want to be seen as doing something. And so, you know, when you get into a recession, there's this incentive for the parties to say, well, you know, either to outbid each other or to say, well, here's my policy and it's a better policy. And so, you know, there's sort of this desire to show that you care. And the way that you do that is by enacting some policy. And, you know, you could argue that it makes much more sense to have these things already in place that will react and respond automatically. But that, in a sense, requires the politicians to take a hand that once they put the system in place, they then have to step back and take a hands off approach. And I'm just wondering whether the political dynamics allow, you know, since, since the fact that we haven't done this yet, <laughs> you know, do, do the political dynamics impede or prevent Congress from actually implementing stronger, better automatic stabilizers and then taking a hands off approach? Or do we end up in the worst of both worlds where we put more automatic stabilizers in in place, and then Congress still has an incentive to come in and layer on top of that. I mean, what's what's so what's I, the dynamic? I think I think the bigger reason we haven't had automatic stabilizers is just a lack of agreement about what they should look like and what the what the parameters should be. I think we've seen that Congress in the past is able to delegate uh, certain economic policies and take a hands-off approach. The one obvious one that comes to mind with me, uh, speaking of an earlier segment, is Social Security. It used to be the case that Congress would adjust the benefit levels each year and they would take this vote and they would increase Social Security benefits to keep up with cost of living. And then eventually they indexed it to uh, to, to grow with prices and so uh, benefits to grow with prices. And now benefits are automatically adjusted. And we haven't had a vote to do a broad-based social security benefit increase in my lifetime. Um, so, you know, nothing that's been signed into law. And so, you know, I, I think that that part of what took the impetus away from Congress doing that is that it's been it's been automatically indexed. And yes, if you, if you hadn't had that indexation, Congress may have had more pressure to do a benefit increase that was more than uh, the cost of living. And so it actually, I think, it helped make the benefit increase more in line with what it should be as a result. Uh, I think the other counter I would say is, yes, we saw the government, we saw the politicians wanting to show that they were doing something in this crisis and do too much as a result. Uh, but in 2009, they didn't do enough. And I think that, you know, if, if there were this perpetual problem of politicians always overshooting, uh, I would agree, but I think that when we've seen sometimes they overshoot and sometimes they undershoot, uh, it's it's better to try to Goldilocks it. And and if it doesn't work and if they continuously overshoot, uh, you know, if we did this automatic stabilizer and then they did discretionary stimulus on top and that pushed us over and we had inflation, uh, I would like to think that they will learn their lesson from that and that will not no longer be a, a popular way to go about it. I want to uh, close by going back to the beginning uh, on the State of the Union address. During the State of the Union address, the president's catchphrase, aside from standing up finish for seniors, was uh, finish the job, finish the job. And, you know, PPI, you guys made a, you know, a lot of comments last year about the things that you thought were good from his agenda and the Build Back Better agenda. 
and uh, and the things that uh, needed some work. So when he was going through that list during the State of the Union address about things that he still wanted to do, uh, any any quick suggestions come to mind on what finishing the job uh, would mean for say from the PPI's perspective? Yeah, I think I think so. Uh, we had a lot of investment programs that were passed last year as part of uh, the the budget reconciliation bill and. Uh, the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Uh, I think finishing the job is getting those investments built and done so in a in a cost effective way. Well, that's uh, that's all the time we have for this week. Um, uh, you've been listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host Bob Bixby, and Steve Robinson and I have been discussing opportunities for bipartisan fiscal reform with Ben Ritz. He's the director of the Center for Funding America's Future at the Progressive Policy Institute. Ben recently had a essay for the Peter G. Peterson Foundation on this very subject and had a op-ed published in the uh, Wall Street Journal this week. Well worth reading about some of the opportunities and avoidances of uh, dealing with our long-term fiscal challenges. Tune in again next week when we'll have another edition of Facing the Future.